Welcome to Biz Takeouts, Biz Community's sound bite-sized business news to go. I'm your host, Rotendo Nyamuda. Coming up on the Takeouts menu, our starter, Strategic Research and Public Affairs Officer for Westgrow, Karen Bosman. For the first time in a very long time, Africa is actually starting to speak with one voice, and that's thanks to what's been happening over the last few years with the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. And for our mains, Mark Milliner, the Director of Customer Experience from Kantar. You've got to organize your business around the customer. So you've got to understand their needs, you've got to understand their journeys, you've got to understand the way that they interact with your brand and, and what different types of customers you have. Our unforgettable value-added side dish is future finance specialist from Flux Trends, Bronwyn Williams. Universal basic income is a concept that actually dates back quite a few centuries. Martin Luther King was quite a key proponent of it. And it basically speaks to the fact that it's an alternative type of welfare, whereby everyone in the country would get a living wage paid to them by the state. And that's everyone, regardless of your age, your occupation, how wealthy you are, everyone gets paid to be a citizen. And finally, for dessert, an unforgettable conversation with MD of Mentospot, Nico Ols. As a business owner, or you need to pay over your employee, employees uh, pay as you earn. So you are registered, you need to hand in your, their RFP files, that is a legal obligation. So I, I as a company need to pay your pay as you earn because it is your money. That is the biggest problem. So if, if, if they don't do it correctly, I'm actually stealing from you and from every individual that's working for my company that I'm not doing it correct for. It's time for Biz Takeouts. Our first discussion is with Karen Bosman on Trade and Agoa, also known as the Africa Growth Opportunity Act. I would love to get some insight into the African Growth Opportunity Act. So what is it and how does it affect us? So the African Growth Opportunity Act, which most people know as a GOA. It's not a trade agreement. Lots of people think of it as a trade agreement whereby we get duty-free access into the into the US market. But it is in fact a piece of US legislation which fits in with their trade and development agenda where and a lot of developing countries have this type of arrangement where you have an internal unilateral piece of legislation saying for these developing countries we're going to give preferential market access. And um, there's a general one which is international, internationally called the general system of preferences. Many developing countries have, have some type of GSP program. What the US did is they took the GSP program which exists and they added extra benefits for African countries and that is called AGOA. From the West to the East, there is such an interesting insight and interest into Africa. All of these legislations, all of these laws, all of these trade agreements, how are we positioning ourselves? Do we have a say in some of these trade agreements and how much of a say, or are we just receiving what is being given to us and agreeing to it? That's a, a very interesting question and, and probably well-timed in the sense that we have been a taker for a very long time because, because Africa hasn't had, as a continent, hasn't really had a unified voice, I don't think. For the first time in a very long time, Africa is actually starting to speak with one voice and that's thanks to what's been happening over the last few years with the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. And now with the developments with the Continental Free Trade Agreement, what you're seeing is you're suddenly seeing this whole continent 
standing together and and you know now it's quite a force to be reckoned with when when you have the likes of the east or the west coming to you it's not just one small developing country in africa it's suddenly the whole continent it has one vision and one unified voice looking at kind of a snapshot of industries as a whole what industries are in a position to have the most benefit from various trade agreements at this point, uh, that's interesting. At, I mean, at this point, most of our, well, all of our trade agreements essentially are specifically focused on goods exports mm -hmm. and don't yet include a very big aspect in terms of services. Okay. So right now, the main beneficiaries would be people exporting goods into those markets. And you, you can really see how much it helped if you look at the vehicle industry in South Africa. And a goer and, and even the, the EU trade agreement. Um, we, we managed to set up a very successful vehicle industry in South Africa be, for various reasons, but one of them being that we have this duty free access into the US market and the EU market, which, and, and it's interesting if you look at our biggest exports to both of these countries, vehicles are very high up. And so the, that's a national product. If you look at the Western Cape, um, most of the exports going out are wine and fruit. So at this point, those are the people that are benefiting the most. But if you look at what is going to be included in the continental free trade, for instance, there's a big focus on services trade. So how would you recommend that one in the service industry take advantage of the fact that services are now becoming quite a big high commodity when it comes to exports. The first thing that needs to happen is South Africa needs to negotiate its side of the services schedule at the Continental Free Trade Agreement. So basically South Africa has to set its, set its schedule and translating a, a service provision into Essentially, a, a trade agreement, is, it's, it's quite complicated. And you look at various things. You look at the movement of the service provider. You look at um, market access. You look at yeah, various um, different modes of providing that service. And then countries say, okay, we'll open up a little bit on this and we'll mm -hmm. open up a little bit on that. So it's, it's quite a complex negotiation and it's, a, it's quite a complex way of translating doing business across borders onto paper, but ultimately um, it's there for the taking at the moment and it is it would be so much more easy for a service provider to be able to just go across the border, mm -hmm. whether you be one person or whether it's a company that sets up somewhere in another country in Africa. In addition to that, if you if you look at, I mean, the big thing we want to try and build is value chains within Africa. So again, if you can make a, a better business environment across borders, you can have, you, you, you'd be able to have much stronger value chains throughout regions. You really want to sort of um, maximize the ability to have value chains within, within regions and across borders. With how connected um, the continent has become because of technology, how important is it that we have these platforms like Biz Community that aren't just showcasing what's happening in South Africa, but Africa as a continent and our connectivity and the interconnectivity of business, of industries, of services. I think it's absolutely crucial. And I think we need to all be much more focused on what is happening um, in the more macro space of Africa. There's so many opportunities. We are part of this vibrant upcoming continent. The whole world is interested in Africa. And 
the more we can share ideas across borders. I mean, we, we can't wait for governments to create trade and trade agreements. That's not, that's, it's not the governments that trade cross borders. It's the people that do business with each other. It's the people that need to know about each other. And, and the more we can engage and talk about it and, and do it, the better. We now enter into an interesting discussion with Mark Mullenau, who speaks about how companies and corporates need to put customers first. There is a lot of data collection in the work you do. How do you collect your data? Traditionally, we've been in the sort of marketing research side of things, doing surveys and interviewing people and asking them questions and collecting that data. More recently, particularly in the customer experience realm, um, things are changing fast because there's very many ways to collect data particularly when it comes around to people's interaction with brands and transactions and so forth. There's a lot of different sources. So a lot of the focus now is on transactional level surveys. So once you've had an interaction with a, with a brand or a service, you get a little prompt that you've filled in your details somewhere and you get a little prompt on your phone, which is, please rate the service. If you've driven around an Uber, I'm sure after every trip, you've got a little survey like that. Um, and all of that information is collected on a platform. Um, so that you can monitor things sort of close to real time by dashboards. And and then uh, there's, there's other ways that we can collect data as well. So we're playing around with things like using chatbots on uh, uh, Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp and so forth and getting very good results from that as well. So, you know, it's looking at constantly looking at how technology enables us to have better, more meaningful conversations with customers and closer to the the moments that really matter for them. And what are some of the results? Like, what are they showing? Are customers happy? Are customers really upset? How are customers feeling these days? Yeah, so I think one of the things that we, we have a look at, and this is just a, a study that we've been doing as part of our CX Plus program around the world, and we did a sort of a little mini version in South Africa just to see how do we compare against some of the other countries. And I think overall, um, we see that South Africans are quite positive, um, relatively speaking. I think there's still a big gap between um, sort of what CEOs would like to think. So, you know, globally, from, from some research we've done, around 91% of CEOs believe that they're really customer-centric and that customer-centric is essential to driving business growth. But when we ask uh, consumers out there, on average, around 30 31% say, well, we think that the brands that we interact with are, are really customer-centric. But that does compare quite favorably with um, some of the other countries around the world. So the one we're closest to is the USA. They come in at 32%. Um, but in other countries, you know, if you look at Italy, it's 13. France, it's 10. In Spain, it's 9. Poland is sort of the lowest that we've measured in the, in the research we're doing at 8%. Um, and then places like the UK at 20 India, 29%. So mm. it varies, but we're not too bad. Our, yeah. our customer experience in South Africa um, is is actually not is ahead of a lot of developed countries. Mm. I love how you ask the CEOs and you ask the customers, what is the gap between what is real and what one might believe? Yes, that's another thing that we measure. Um, and again, we haven't yet done that in South Africa, but one of the, th the, the things that we are looking at from a global perspective is what is the gap between the promise that marketing makes um, and the experience that customers have? So we have a look at measuring how people perceive um, different brands' um, image in terms of different er elements of the service offering 
and then we have a look at the actual experience and we measure that gap because ideally what you want to do is keep that gap as close as possible. Now, I'm delivering on the promise that I'm making to you. I'm getting what I'm expecting. Where we see that there's a negative gap, so people are perceiving that a brand is going to give them a great experience, and then the reality is that they're not, there's a, a problem. You know, you're not living up to the promise, and you're going to lose credibility and trust. The converse is if you um, have no perception amongst your potential target market of what you do, but your customers think you're great, then you're really not getting the message out enough. So you need to then address it in terms of you could be get, doing a lot more by marketing yourself a lot better. So we can give some guidance to, to clients in terms of how to do that. Mm. And so when it comes to the customer experience in general, where do you feel the important touch points are and what are they? One of the things that we see is with the whole digital evolution in the marketplace is that there are just so many more ways that you can interact with your customers. Um, there's so many different channels and touch points, and there's so many channels that they can interact with you. So consumers have a much bigger voice than they would have been the, had in the past. Um, and that allows people to choose how they want to interact. And I think one of the key things is that with this whole focus on digital, a lot of companies are trying to make the experience as sort of seamless as possible, um, potentially trying to push everybody onto digital so that you don't have to actually speak to a human being. And I think that is a mistake. Um, in some instances, yes, your customers want to do certain tasks uh, by themselves and don't need any help. But there's other instances where they actually need to engage. Uh, if it's a once-off thing that you're never going to do again, you don't want to figure it out yourself. You want someone to help you. So you need to understand what is the journey that my customer is on um, and how can I help them on that journey and what's going to be the best channel and approach to do that. So that's, that's the one aspect. The second aspect is that we live in the age of connection. Um, it's about connecting with people. It's about connecting with brands. And it's about creating that emotional engagement. And the brands which are going to win are the ones where you remember them because they've connected with you at some level. And if you get people out of that equation or you're doing things so seamlessly that, you know, you don't even notice it, how are you going to create that emotional engagement? So I think that's a critical thing for um, companies to be thinking about is on that journey, where's the opportunity to... Um, create an experience. What advice do you have for businesses that want to improve their customer experience and overall customer engagement? I think the first advice is to have the customer's view come first. You, you've got to organize your business around the customer. So you've got to understand their needs. You've got to understand their journeys. You've got to understand the way that they interact with your brand and, and what different types of customers you have. So it's not the same size fits everybody. So who are your different customers? How do they engage with you? What are all the touch points and ways that they interact with you when they're trying to complete their tasks? That's the first understanding. Um, and I think part of that then is developing a customer experience strategy. So what is it that we want to be known for? What are we going to do really well? What is it that our employees will really understand that we're about? So decide what those things are, make it clear, come up with plans, 
um, and then start working on those things. And then it's a journey. You know, over time, you can start implementing transactional measurement programs. You can start implementing sort of closed the loop systems if you've, if you've got uh, an interaction with your customers. And you can start developing uh, employee engagement surveys and, and all of those types of things. There's an endless list of, of things that you can do to improve your customer experience. Um, but you just start with the customer first. Coming up next, Bronwyn Williams speaks about the very ambitious universal basic income. The one thing we want to kind of focus on today is UBI or universal basic income. First of all, what is it? Universal basic income is a concept that actually dates back quite a few centuries. Martin Luther King was quite a key proponent of it. And it basically speaks to the fact that it's an alternative type of welfare whereby everyone in the country would get a living wage paid to them by the state. And that's everyone, regardless of your age, your occupation, how wealthy you are, everyone gets paid to be a citizen. Wow. So it doesn't matter if you're on the billionaires list or if you're unemployed, you're all going to get that universal basic income. That's the most classic version of universal basic income mm -hmm. absolutely but of course it might be a little bit utopian for yeah. our world in reality when we think about it but there have been trials done in places like alaska mm -hmm. where all the citizens of that american state get an oil dividend every year from the reserves that the community has and that sort of dished out to everyone is a form of a universal basic income it's not quite universal because it's not for everyone in the country it's only for residents of alaska and it's not quite a basic income and then it's not a living wage but it's quite a nice top up so I think it equates to around about 30,000 rand a year that, that people get given mm -hmm. just for living in that particular city so it's nice who doesn't love free money right yes and how practical is that in a South African or even African context it really wouldn't be because that's the other catch with the universal basic income concept. It was designed as a way to replace all the current welfare and services in the state. So if we were to institute a universal basic income, the idea is to simplify it. So instead of the government providing services, just give people cash and let them spend it on what they need. So it's quite simple at its core, but it's more complicated in reality because people don't like their stuff being taken away from them. On a more practical level, in a South African context, we simply don't have enough money to pay everyone in our country a living wage out of the tax revenue because it's all obviously being funded by tax at the end of the day. And we already have to stretch tax base. If we were to increase that, we would have a problem. But then again, if you look at South Africa, we're one of the world's biggest grant payers. We have a lot of people living off grants, which is basically a form of universal basic income. The difference being that we also top it up with a whole lot of other services like healthcare and education and all the rest of it. Mm. How does one even derive a universal basic income and, you know, people run towards it if it's something that's not practical at the end of the day? Well, in America, it, it almost is practical because they are a much wealthier economy. They've got many more billionaires and the uber rich and very big companies. And they've got a much, much healthier GDP per capita. So they're able to, if they were to re redistribute it, they also don't have the huge inequalities that we have in South Africa. So they, if they were to redistribute their wealth in a more equitable way, they could just about afford the sort of size of universal basic income that Andrew Yang is proposing. It does come with a rather increased tax bill though. So he's talking about raising all sorts of different taxes, taking a little bit from everyone in order to combine this whole pool together. So it's something that not everyone would agree with. 
In fact, in some places like Sweden, they've done referendums on actually instituting a universal basic income, but the populations voted against it mm. for reasons of sustainability and affordability in the long run. That those were some of the questions that came up. Okay. And how did the trials in Uganda and Kenya uh, work out? Because I think that's a little bit probably closer to home. Yes, absolutely. So in those trials, we saw that people did start businesses, that families did manage to get themselves out of poverty, their living standards improved. The problem with those trials is that they weren't sustainably funded. They were funded by charities who just put money in. So there was no criteria to make it a sustainable ongoing program. And there were once again, very small trials that were conducted. So they can give you an indication of how people that receive money behave, but it doesn't really give you a good indication of how to fund the system in the long run to see if that works out. Now, there are other alternatives, other proposals that are similar to universal mm. basic income, yeah. a negative income tax. Okay, what is a negative income tax? It sounds nice, right? Yeah. More money back from SARS. Yes. Well, we already. If you submit your tax return, sometimes you get t cash back, right? Mm -hmm. You know, for all those credits like paying your medical aid bills or topping up your pension fund, you get a bit of tax back. Now, the concept with a negative income tax is instead of a universal basic income is number one, it's not for everyone. It's only for the poor. It's not for the rich. So universal is that everyone gets the same check at the end of the month. So a negative income tax is basically saying that if you earn below a decent standard of living at the end of the, at the end of the year, if your income falls below that level, then the government will give you a negative income tax, in other words, cash to top you up to that basic level. So that's got more criteria already than the universal basic income. You have to earn below the minimum threshold. If you earn over that, then you're a net taxpayer still. And it's only for people that actually submit tax returns. So you have to already be an adult at that point. But that could be a more sustainable way to do it, especially if you start setting the bar quite low and you slowly over time extend it. It's an option that people could look at. What are your final thoughts on universal basic income? Do you think that it is something that we will see progressing, even if it is in the West? Um, like you said, possibly not in you know South Africa anytime soon, but way too from here. I think it's an idea that time has definitely come. I think it's something that we're going to be talking about a lot for a long time to come. And there are definitely going to be countries that will start to try it. might be one of your Nordic countries. It might even be America itself. But then we'll get to see how it works. And if it does work out and it does become a more cost-effective way to redistribute wealth, as we all know, inequality is a bit extreme at the moment. The top eight richest gentlemen in the world own now more wealth than the entire bottom 50% of the world's population. That's insane. So you can understand that in a climate like that, people are looking for ways to make living a bit more equitable and why this is an attractive option to people. So I don't think that it's going to be something that's going to go away. I think that voters might get hooked on a taste for free money. And finally, a conversation with Nicole Oles on how important it is for corporates to pay their employees income tax. Currently, when you are out of this country for more than 183 days, you are not liable to pay tax within South Africa. Okay. So it means, let's say, um, I earn X amount overseas. I work in Angola and I earn 150,000 per month. Now, I already have to pay my dues at that side. But when I come to this country, I don't have to pay any tax. But I still make use of our public roads and our, you know, all these kind of stuff I make use of, but mm. I don't pay any tax. Mm. So what they've done is they've recently put a law in place that will tax you even if you're working out of the country. Now, this will obviously have a massive impact on individuals 
that is earning money that side because now they're going to be it, it's almost like you're going to be double taxed mm. but you will never be taxed more than what our tax bracket in South Africa is so unfortunately South Africa is one of the highest uh, um, uh, you know income tax paying countries in the world I think it's number six or fifth mm. uh, up to 45 percent uh, that you can be taxed and these guys are taxed up to 45 percent but now what happens is if he earns money that let's say in the Congo or Angola I don't know what example I use their, their taxes usually capture about 30, 36%. Mm -hmm. So what will happen is that difference will be taxed this side. So let's say they pay 38% that side, mm -hmm. then they'll have to pay the other, the other 7 or 8 or 10% this side that they did not pay that side, mm -hmm. up to 45%. So you won't pay a full amount that side and also a full amount this side, and at the end of the day you're going to be taxed 78%. It won't happen at all. Okay. But you will be taxed accordingly. Okay. And what are the implications of that for, because obviously that's going to negatively impact one's business or one's company or one's earning potential? Of course. I, th I, think, I think the individual as such is, is the one that's going to, uh, um, is going to be affected the most, uh, as well as people who want to employ uh, South Africans, skilled South Africans, uh, on a project based in, let's say in Africa or wherever it might be, because now that person is liable for the tax. So he's going to have to pay the tax that side and this side. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, it's, it's not, South Africans are usually seen as cheap labor, which will not be the case anymore. Mm -hmm. So that is more or less the impact it will have, I think, in the next, well, three to five years. You mentioned something interesting that we have one of the mm. highest tax rates mm. in the world. Mm. Why is that? And is there a way that we can restructure to yeah. get that tax rate down? Yeah. So, um, look, I don't know why it is. Um, but unfortunately, you know, that that is... Okay, well, I actually do, do, do have an idea why. Okay, this is just a... We, we, only, we, we are only about five to six million taxpayers in South Africa, and we are a country of 60 million people. So, unfortunately, you know, it's, there's only five million people carrying a whole country of 60 million people. Mm -hmm. So, for that to work out, you're going to need to pay a quite a high amount of tax. If it's income tax, act, business act, whatever it might be, there's not, there's not a lot of people paying tax. And like I said previously, your skilled labor, skilled labor people is the ones that's affected the most. Because 70% of our workforce is people earning below the threshold, mm -hmm. earning below 17,000 rand per month. And you only get taxed to about, if, if you, I think if you earn more than 8,000 rand per month anyway. So that is why there's not, not a lot of taxpayers, and that is why we need to increase our own personal income tax. Mm. And what are the implications of not paying your tax? Because it's so easy to look at that mm. tax amount, get a little bit scared and say, mm. actually, I'm not going to pay my tax returns. Yeah, it's actually... SARS is, uh, has a lot of power. SARS is actually the only entity in, in the country that can blacklist you without even sending out a, a notice. So you can be blacklisted, uh, court mandated, blacklisted, done, end of story, if you are not tax compliant in this country. And, um, you know, I've worked with a few clients that, that had this issue before, and it's not an easy thing to just go and SARS will say, okay, cool, you know, you're not blacklisted anymore. But to, to get that off your name is, is massive. So financially, it will definitely have an impact on you. You know, uh, SARS has the uh, authority to blacklist you as an individual and uh, also uh, pursue a criminal case. Mm -hmm. uh, tax evasion is quite a serious criminal act in this in this country, um, due to the fact that there's so many people trying to evade it or avoid it. You can't. What advice do you have for businesses when it comes to income tax? Specifically, income tax acts. Um, 
as a business owner, or you need to pay over your employee employees' uh, pay as you earn. So you are registered. You need to hand in your their RFP files. That is a legal obligation uh, from your side. So the tip I do have is, well, look, I can't actually give a tip on it. I mean, it's it's actually quite simple. There's a there's a table, and you need to pay it. But what we can do is we can the tip I can give them is go to someone who can give them some financial advice, instructing that person's tax correctly. Um, like a payroll system. I mean, that is obviously something we do. We are a glorified payroll system, if you want to put it that way. Um, but yeah, try to maximize that person's personal income. So his net pay. That is what you want to focus on. And it, But obviously do it legally, according to what SARS tells you. Um, I know it's sometimes tough. You know, there's a lot of business owners who does not have a clue, especially new SMEs, what to do, how many to pay over, how does this work, how do I, uh, um, what's the codes I must put in at the end of the financial tax year. Um, that is where we come in. You know, we, we like to take this burden over and actually give more money in your employees' pockets by taking over this burden. We take over the, your whole admin payroll HR function. Um, at no cost, you know, if let's say there's a, the salary bill is one million rand per month, give it to me you know i'm happy it will stay a million rand a month but your people will get a salary increase i'll i'll take over your your admin your payroll your hr the legal side of it um otherwise than that the the only other advice i can give them is see someone see a financial professional Mm -hmm. go see an accountant or an auditor to say listen this is this is what i have i have three four five six employees or a hundred um how can we maximize their net net income legally and just make sure that you submit your things correctly to SARS, especially your IRP files, because mm-hmm. someone pays you earn. It's it's almost like I'm taking money from you. Mm-hmm. So I, I, as a company, need to pay your pay as you earn because it is your money. That, that is the biggest problem. So if, if, if they don't do it correctly, I'm actually stealing from you and from every individual that's working for my company that I'm not doing it correct for. So there can be so many counts of, of uh, uh, you know, of, of stealing, actually. It is exactly what it is if I don't pay it over correctly. So, yeah, make sure you do. And that's a wrap on today's show. Biz Takeouts. Take it where you like it, when you like it, how you like it.